How are you doing today, sir? I'm great. It's wonderful to see you. It, it always gives me memories back to uh, when I first started. So uh, I'm proud of seeing your accomplishments and uh, I'm honored to still be in the game. Um, yes, I'm also happy to still be in the game. Uh, uh, so the, during the pandemic, I've been asking everyone the same first two questions. Uh, and here, here we go. Um, what TV series would you love to guest direct? Oh, Sopranos. Got it. Cool. Um, what movie or movies do you think you've seen the most? Uh, specifically, which films? I would say Rocky I've seen. I mean, Fletch, Rocky, um, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, A Prophet. I, I don't know. I, I, all I do is watch movies. Uh, <laughs> on and on and on. Uh, I don't know. I just watch everything. So... Um, jumping backwards for a second, as you know, I was Pulp big, Fiction, I guess too. Sorry, I don't know why I threw that one in there. I think I think that Pulp Fiction for I don't know anyone who hasn't seen Pulp Fiction multiple times. It's yeah. one of those. You know. It's a fun one. Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's so many movies. I, I could talk about Dazed and Confused for the next hour. Um, so I want to jump backwards, as you know. I, I was a big fan of Lincoln Lawyer, and I. I and I think maybe we've talked about this. I don't remember. How close did you guys ever get to doing a sequel or developing a sequel? We were really close, actually. There were two things going on simultaneously. There was a TV show that was going to happen at ABC. And then there was the sequel, which was going to be an amalgamation of two books. Um, and unfortunately, as it goes, due to rights and relationships and a lot of different things, uh, Tom Rosenberg and Gary Lucchese at Lakeshore parted ways with Michael Conley. And that was sort of the beginning of the end. And uh, I think financially, movies are more lucrative for book writers than television shows. So Michael's always leaned into trying to figure it out. But he ended up in the hands of David Kelly and it went to CBS. And then subsequently, now it's at Netflix. And um, I'm not involved in that. Yeah, I was, it's, I was always wondering, it's, uh, I was always wondering what happened. Um, uh, jumping into why I actually get to talk to you today. Uh, so let's just start with the basics, like a, a softball right at the beginning. Uh, who killed Tupac? Uh, that one, I, I have my theories. I don't actually know. That, that one is so complicated, so much more, as complicated as Christopher Wallace's murder is. The murder of Tupac is, is so much more complicated. Um, so that one's really tricky that I don't really have a proper answer to. And I wish I did. And, uh, you know, I, I don't actually know the answer to that. But I have multiple theories that on one day I think X and the next day I think Y. But I did have on our movie, there was a whole Tupac section and we had an exact replica of the BMW to a T that him and Sugar were in when he was shot. And that car was in my possession for six months. So I drove it. And when you see how small the interior of the car is, it's really hard to buy that Suge Knight called a hit on Tupac in the same car he was on, in. That, that, that to me is a, is a, for a moment, I believed in that theory just because of all the Christopher Wallace stuff. I'm sure there are levels of plausibility to that theory, but when you actually sit in the car, it's hard to believe. It's also hard to believe when you sit in that car that Suge didn't take any bullets at all. Um, 
and he lied about it too. So it, I, I, that stuff is so, so tricky and so deep that um, I truly, as I stated, I, I just don't have a proper answer to it. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I read that uh, that he got fragments or something like so you're saying well, that, that was all part of what I'm referring to as the lie. Right. So you're saying he got hit. He never got hit. That's interesting. He didn't so he put it in the news, in my understanding. Again, I, I, I have to look back at this stuff. It's been years, um, but I'm pretty, pretty sure that um, he had got a, a bullet across the, like it scathed them or something like that. But it, to, to my knowledge of police reports and other things I've seen, I don't think he was hit at all. By the way, some softball. Yeah, exactly. I, was, I, was, I was messing with you. I was, I was just like, oh my God. Yeah, I was just completely messing with you. But I, I do want to talk about the fact that um, for younger people that are not familiar with the 90s and what happened then, the killing of Christopher and Tupac was the biggest thing for many years at that time. I mean, it shook everything and it was what everyone talked about. Can, and can you sort of, for people that weren't, you know, paying attention back then for younger people, can you sort of explain that? To me, it was RJFK in a way. Um, Tupac for me in particular had a tremendous impact on me from his music to the imagery, to his poetry, to um, his social and political outreach and Afini Shakur, his mother being a Black Panther and him being raised with all of the sort of form formal political understanding that I think a lot of people were not as educated as Pac. So it took his rap into a different place. Um, Biggie was just such a special lyricist. And these guys were just on like rocket ship trajectories. They were larger than life. I mean, they, they, they were beyond being icons. They really were larger than life. So to have both of these young black men struck down and have lost their lives at such, such a young age is, <laughs> quite devastating and it was a shock to the world um these were international as i'm saying megastars plus and the fact that i think quincy jones I, I won't nail it but he talked about at 25 if um malcolm x had died he would have been known as detroit red a street hustler um if oprah winfrey had died she would at 25 she would have just been known as a local news reporter and i think his overall point was the loss of Pac in particular and obviously let's equate that to biggie of these young men black men at such a young age it's it's a, it's a quarter of their life potential if that um so if you can think about what contextualize what they've achieved in the limited time they were here which is just unbelievable, then you can only imagine what they could have become and accomplished and achieved throughout their lifetime, which was cut so severely short. How did you get involved in City of Lies in terms of um, how did it land on your desk? And was there ever any apprehension at taking on this material? Came across my desk right when the book was published. Uh, Don Sikorsky, an executive producer on the film, produced The Infiltrator and had given me The Infiltrator book, brought the book to me right away due to the stature of where I was at in my career and financial limitations and all of these things. And also I think it was optioned by two studios and three movie stars. Um, we were never able to get it made. Um, I believe Will Smith's company may have had it. Um, pretty certain Appian Way and DiCaprio's company had it and maybe Stallone's, you can verify all that stuff, but it had been around Hollywood is the bottom line. And the reality is I couldn't get my hands on it. And ultimately what ended up happening was while I was making The Infiltrator, it had come up and Don had come to me and said, look, I think we can get Labyrinth. 
I, I jumped at the opportunity because the expose to tell the modern day JFK story with these two iconic individuals and rappers who had such a deep influence on me, I, I felt was, you know, really a, a deep responsibility, incredibly important. And that's how I attempted to approach it. Um, it wasn't as simple of a story as that, but I won't bore you with the long version of the ins and outs of how it evolved. But essentially, that's where it started. This is one of those, um, the story that you are taking on with this film is something that has fascinated so many people. And I would imagine that you did an awful lot of research to try to get your head around this entire thing before you know filming frame one. So can you sort of talk about a little bit, maybe what surprised you to learn or like some of the things you, you learned, I guess, while researching that you really, I guess, I just butchered the way I said this, but. What surprised you during the, the research process in terms and any what what maybe shocked you even? The first thing was and so we get the rights to the book. And at the time, the screenplay was actually gifted to me, which is part of that longer story. So it had been developed into a screenplay. Regardless of where that screenplay was at, I felt a deep responsibility to surely reread the book from cover to cover. That book was a little over a decade old at that point. So then the responsibility was even deeper from my point of view, which was like, well, it's been 10 years. So then I started going onto the internet and started getting my hands on anything and everything which was within my reach. And what I started to notice was, not only was Russell Poole's theory at that time particularly treated as if it was outdated or even false, what was even more insane was that pr pretty much anyone could go on the internet or could write a book if you had some connection to it and profit and put a theory into the world and all of a sudden that became the theory. And they were baseless. Most of what I was finding was people profiteering off this man's death and murder and they were baseless. And the more and more research I did, the more and more it affirmed that the work that Russ Poole had done was beyond accurate and factual. So I was like, this is insane that this is not the prominent theory on what's going on. So that then led me to Perry Sanders, who was the attorney for Valletta Wallace and the family um, in the civil, civil case. That also led me to Sergio Robledo, who was the lead investigator for the family for the civil case, but also happened to be Russ Poole's um, supervisor for a large part of his tenure at the LAPD. It also led me up to Portland. I traveled all over uh, to Randall Sullivan, who was the author of the book. And I basically worked with Sergio. Um, Sergio has sadly passed and he was such a warm, wonderful, inspiring human being. I could have never made this movie without him. I would not speak of this if he hadn't have passed, but he gave me full-blown access to the redacted files, to depositions. I had my hands on everything. So as a result of that, I had a really insider's point of view and my own reinvestigation of the case into you know, being able to analyze Russ Poole's theory and then go beyond that theory. So it was a pretty extensive um, journey to say the least. I, I never in any movie have I ever, you know, dove into ha had I ever dealt with anything of this magnitude. And, you know, obviously I went back and looked at Oliver Stone's JFK, but I truly did feel that this was a version of, I'm not saying as a film, you know, that's obviously quite a special film. Um, you know, we set out to tell our story and to tell the story um, to fight for truth and justice. And that's why I reached out to Miss Wallace and asked her to be a part of the film. I, I couldn't make the film without her or the Poole family. I wasn't willing to. 
talk a little bit about her involvement in this thing. Was she apprehensive at all, or was it an immediate once she understood that you were being, um, you were really trying to get to the bottom of this? We didn't know one another at all uh, through Sergio Robledo and some other things. I was able to get her number. I cold called her. I was very nervous and anxious because in movie land and in the land of these icons, these people don't feel real to the audience. And what we're dealing with is a real man, which is why I do this in the movie and also in the, in the world, named Christopher Wallace, who was murdered at the hands of the police. And there's a tremendous corruption in the cover-up. So this is a mother I'm calling of a son, you know, has a son who's been murdered. And I, I, that to me, the gravity of that was never lost on me. And that's why I was unwilling to make the film without her blessing. And that's why I also wanted to make it hand in hand with her. But in seeing typical biopics, what typically happens, and this is not a biopic, but you cast actors to portray um, these larger than life figures. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't feel there was anybody who could capture the charisma of a Biggie or a Pac or do any of that. So I really worked very hard to humanize both of these men. And that's sort of the mother son you know, thing that we're creating. So that's why when you're hearing Christopher's voice in the movie, it's a real conversation he had. That's why I embedded his acapellas, which Miss Wallace had gifted me with Wayne Barrow, you know, Biggie's former manager, into the score. That's why all of the media you're seeing is real and truthful. All the pictures are real and truthful. In, in the one reenactment, so to speak, I did cast the actor um, that had portrayed Biggie, but I really tried to create for 90% of it, this impressionistic feel of what Christopher Wallace felt like and tried to, in the few shots of his face, tried to blur them or keep them at a, quite a large distance, just to stick with the, the truth of this human being that we all loved and appreciated that gave so many gifts to the world whose life was cut short. And I could have never done that without Wayne Barrow, Biggie's former manager and Miss Wallace. Um, they, they made the movie hand in hand with us. And I asked her in person after nine months of a phone trusted built relationship, would you, I had asked her on the phone and she laughed me off the phone and said, go get Angela Bassett. She played this role. I, I'm not an actor. But when I said to her and I explained to her that the, the gravity of having her in the film and how that would humanize Christopher and humanize their plight and her fight for truth and justice, she was on board. Uh, yeah. It, um... Uh, and she's really good in the movie um, and adds a lot. The, uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about casting uh, Johnny and Forrest. Um, uh, what's interesting about Johnny is that uh, he tends to play roles where he's under makeup or doing things where you don't actually see his face like that. He, he strives to do those kind of movies all the time. And this is, you know, him. So talk a little bit about um, getting him in this movie. That was day one for me. I, I had a list of um, requirements of what it would take for me to commit to the film. Um, and you know, in the international sales game of getting a movie star and triggering your financing, it's, it's a game. And there's only a small list of actors on that, that, that list. And you have to nail one to get your you know, movie financed. I literally was unwilling to make the movie with anyone other than Johnny Depp. It was on my list of like, this is the only way I'm making the movie. My reasoning for that was <clears throat> the gravity of the story and my concern deeply that in the wrong hands, when I had seen the list of actors that was being suggested, 
I was very worried of like, I don't like of a boring version of Russ Poole. And I knew in the hands of Johnny that it would be something unique and eccentric and um, a little bit off centered. And it's funny because instinctually when we first started diving into the character building, he wanted to play him with a bit of a high functioning, you know, point of view. We worked to sort of shed that down, but there's like bits and pieces of it that Johnny brought to the role. But I really felt in my heart going back to Donnie Brasco and exactly what you were saying, Johnny's done this prosthetic work and all this other stuff and, and it's brilliant and it's amazing, but I wanted to get him back to the antithesis of that. So in, in a typical first meeting with an actor, you know, if you're trying to secure the actor, it's about, you know, if you're lucky an hour, hour and a half. Uh, my first meeting with Johnny was about nine, nine and a half hours. And we, it was, it was, it was super wonderful and really amazing. But the elephant in the room that I was stressed over was I was unwilling to make the movie with him in prosthetics. So I did bring that up in the meeting and I got him at the end of the meeting to say, maybe because we were shuttling between, you know, 2015 and the past years earlier, his idea was to use the prosthetics in a way that, you know, he could do that. And I wanted to go for like raw, like 70s type filmmaking and like really honest and truthful and strip Johnny down in a really human way. And that was very much in the DNA of my goal with him. So I was able to get the maybe from him. But one of the things that I had to say to him was like, look, I think you're brilliant in Black Mass, but the prosthetics with the eyes were really distracting for me. And it took me out and I thought took away from your performance. And I, I, it took some real, I was afraid to say that to him, but I was losing the battle of the prosthetics argument. So I had to pull out the card and his response to me, which was classic was, I wouldn't know, I don't watch my movies. And that was amazing. You know, he was so committed to this film that he actually watched this film and has been a tremendous advocate for it. I know he's really proud of it. And, and I'm really proud that he's in the film. And. Um, I couldn't ask for anything more from him or and especially as an actor. He's, he's been a real gem in the process, to be frank. Uh, what did you learn about, you obviously spoke to Robert Poole's family. Uh, what did you learn about him? What did you want to make sure got depicted in the movie? Um, uh, because he does seem like, you know, in the film, he seems like someone really just striving to get to the truth, no matter what. I think Russ's whole life was embodied by that. Um, he has three children um, in the script that was originally given to me. It was amalgamated into one. Um, their, their whole family understood that Russ's dedication to the force and Russ's dedication to justice and the truth was the embodiment of the man and the character that he was. And uh, I think the family took a hit in a lot of ways from that level of dedication and commitment that Russ made. And where things get really exacerbated is, here's this guy trying to honor the truth and do the right thing and follow the conduct and code of what it really means to him to be a police officer, the lineage of that with his father also in the force. And basically he's being pushed out of the force and disgrace. To this day, his family collects no money from the pension benefits of him being a police officer. Um, so I think these things were really taxing on him. His weight was growing. Um, I think he was drinking. I think he was going through a really, really, really tough time. And this stuff was incredibly painful. The beautiful thing about the Poole family is they're really proud of Russ, his integrity, the father he was and the husband he was. And they're really honored to have the movie be made. This was something that Russ wanted. I was supposed to meet him 
two weeks uh, when he passed away. It was two, our, our date to meet was two weeks after his passing, sadly. So we never actually got to meet. And obviously, as you could see, the gravity of all these things was gigantic. And I had a deep responsibility to the Poole family and the Wallace family. So when the film was made and then subsequently not coming out, I was relentless in my fight to you know, do everything I could in my power and ability to get the movie out because um, I, I gave them my word. Yeah, um, what, that's another thing. What's it been like waiting to get this thing, you know, so people can actually see it? I wouldn't wish it on anyone who's a filmmaker because you don't make movies to then have no one see them. I remember we were having conversations about potentially bringing Johnny and doing something at the Arclight. And to me, that was would have been such a wonderful honor and opportunity to share the movie with the beginning stages of the world. Um, and, you know, not only are we in a world of COVID um, and a pandemic, but <laughs> this movie, it's been in theory cursed from day one. I mean, we've just been riddled with insane problems. Um, I've had threats and warnings and crazy people calling me and people from the streets and people from the LAPD. And I, 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 we, we had a bankruptcy. We had one distributor who I thought, you know, we had a perfect marriage with Open Road and Tom Ortenberg being a wonderful distributor of Gravitas and Spotlight before us. And he was bullish on the finished film and all of these kind of things. And there was gonna be more time to work on it. Um, it was just an ideal situation to have that go under and then end up with Global Road and be treated like the third stepchild and all their nonsense that was going on and Donald Tang's commitment to raise 400 million and raise zero and then they go bankrupt and then we're not in the bankruptcy but we're a party to it legally so we're trapped but we're not actually in the bankruptcy so then when Raven buys everything out we're still stuck and we're the only movie that's stuck. And I'm dealing with an Israeli bank that shut down their whole finance division. And I mean, it, it has been insane beyond imagination, but I just kept sticking with it to the best of my abilities because I, I believe that, I think what's different for me about this film, whether people like it or hate it, as with any film, I can't control. But what I felt was important was the messaging of the film. And with what has happened with social justice and the world today, post when this movie was supposed to come out, I went back and looked at the film because I needed to. And I was really shocked by all of the things that are now defined under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter and all of the injustices and all of the stuff with social justice. And, you know, the idea of the iconography of this uber famous guy, black man being, you know, murdered at the hands of the police and this insane cover up, if it could happen to Biggie, uh, if you're if you're a black individual, you feel like it could happen to anyone if his murder can be covered up. So there are messages and themes of significance and important in the film that I just feel are bigger than me. And I've always felt that way. I've mentioned the word responsibility almost too many times now and just chatting. And as a result, that's really what the film is about for me. Um, this was a really arduous film in the production process, um, the way it was handed to me. And um, I'm very, very proud of it. Very proud of all of the individuals who worked on it. But at the end of the day, it's also a very polarizing film, depending on where you are at politically. There's a card at the end of the movie about 50% of African-American murders going unsolved. Those were huge fights with distributors to keep that card in. I mean, those were political battles beyond anything you could ever imagine just to keep a card in like that. And that's a factual card that was researched and substantiated. So, you know, this has been a unique movie. Um, and hopefully going to really demarcate for me a change in trajectory of what I'm going to be doing in my career. Yeah, the thing, I rewatched the film yesterday after having seen it 
I mean, maybe what, two, three years ago, yeah. um, you know, forever ago. And it really, when I saw it a while ago um, and seeing it again yesterday, it did strike me of how much the film talks about what's in the pop in, in society today, which you couldn't have known when you were making the film no, was going to be, you know, you're, you're, it, it addresses and talks about a lot of stuff that's going on today. It's also a shame that these issues have not gone away and that, you know, it's a, it's a constant battle. I agree with you and I appreciate your recognition of it because uh, my intention wasn't to be ahead of the curve. I understand that change is so challenging. Having made The Infiltrator with Bob Mazur, he talks about, you know, he had all these arrests and, and did all these things, but he feels like he looks at the world and it had no change or impact and it's devastating for him. Um, and that's a hard thing because you dedicate your life to something hoping that there would be some change and or impact. And the reality of this is, you know, I obviously have no indication of any impact or change that this will or won't have, but I am always trying to be positive and hopeful. And I am very much honored to stand side by side with Miss Wallace in her fight for truth and justice. And maybe this is the start of that. This has blown open major doors to a podcast, to a sequel book for Randall Sullivan, to Phil Carson of the FBI speaking out, to potentially a documentary. I mean, this has opened a lot of doors to potentially maybe a refiling of the civil case. We'll see. Yeah, it's interesting because just to be clear, the, the film talks about um, how David Mack and Kevin Gaines and others um, who were in the LAPD moonlighting for death row um, and the sort of, you know, the way that they were intertwined. You know, and uh, it is interesting that, you know, it's been, what, 24 years or 24 20 years. Yeah, 24 years. And, you know, there's still so much that the LAPD will not talk about. And you just have <laughs> to wonder, you know, how at what point will they just come out and say, you know what I mean? Like where more information is not going to be redacted and they'll be willing to acknowledge that maybe they had some officers that shouldn't have been officers. Yeah, I, I think that's the right thing to do. And uh, it would give a lot of closure to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, this is, uh, as I was warned from many people early on and a few people inside the LAPD, they said, Brad, you really don't understand how much bigger than you this is and how big and, you know, it goes to the top. That's what they said. And I said, I'm still making the movie. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, the other thing though is, and just being honest, I, I, I remember working at a movie theater when I was in high school and there were many police officers in that town that would work overtime at the theater, you know, like that's how they made money. And, yeah. and I remember shit going down at that theater and, you know, it never came out, you know, it was just because the cops were protecting, um, you know, like they, you know what I mean? Like they didn't want to risk bad publicity on the place that's paying them, you know, double time or whatever yeah. it is, you know? Yeah, I, I, it's why I fought so hard to get the Kelly Jamerson portion into the story of the movie. I mean, um, that stuff is, that's really the first time on record that there were off-duty off LAPD officers, you know, working for death row associated with the police at an event where a man was blatantly murdered in front of them and it, it was on record and then later all redacted. I mean, it was, that was just super important to me to, take this hard-hitting approach to, you know, the facts of the case. You're trying to tell a very real and authentic story, but you're also making a movie. 
So can you sort of talk about towing that line between fact and fiction and where you are willing to embellish and where you felt I need to, this has to be as honest as possible? It was a really, really challenging thing. Um, I didn't really embellish on anything other than things that I thought creatively were, like, for example, when I got the script, Jack Jackson was some amalgamation, I guess, or version or incarnation, I should say, of uh, Randall Sullivan. But, you know, at this point, I, he was African-American and I worked very tirelessly with Forrest, because I'm not a black man, haven't walked in the, those shoes, to try to represent and create uh, that character in a way that was very honest and real. Um, there's an issue with a particular piece of evidence regarding um, the car that, you know, Jack Jackson brings in. I had to move the timeline on that, but it is an actual piece of evidence. Um, so it was more about the amalgamate. All the stuff with Rafa Perez um, was there, but the way we had Russ Poole and him connect was different. So I did that. I actually did the director's commentary on purpose with Randall Sullivan because I wanted him to substantiate and not be fearful of saying like, this didn't happen this way. It actually happened this way. And I was very much okay with that because when you listen to, not expecting you to, but if, if someone listens to the director's commentary with Randall, you'll see that we're like right on the line with things. If we're changing it, I was really careful about these things. And obviously, um, you know, this stuff was tricky. Also, when I inherited the movie, uh, you know, the children were amalgamated into one child versus the three. I mean, there was just a lot of little things. But, you know, I, I made the choice to honor and live with many of the decisions Christian Contreras made, but in the same breath, really focused on what I thought would craft the movie from script to screen. I felt like it was a great read, but it didn't feel like when I first got it a movie. So I had to figure out how to make it a movie. And, um, you know, that was a real challenge. Yeah, I don't think people are going to uh, um, object to him having one kid in the movie versus three. Yeah, I, think, I think that that's, you know, not as important as depicting or get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, that's why I, um, I didn't feel it would be responsible to just fictionalize things for dramatization and not be able to substantiate them with hard facts. And everything is factually based in, you know, in theory in the movie. And if it's off by having it been amalgamated or adjusted, the, the facts behind it are substantiated. That's exactly why I referenced the director's commentary because Randall, I remember him sitting with me saying like, that's not exactly what happened with Rafa Perez and Russ Poole, but this, 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 and this did happen with Rafa Perez. I see why you amalgamated it. Or the whole situation with the Rampart scandal. You know, I mean, the Rampart scandal is like, look over here because all this is going on and it's really a version of a scam. And, you know, we tried it. You know, Randall says in his book, I spent 50 pages on this. You spent one minute on it, you know, so you see the difference. So, yeah, it's also I mean, listen, that's the thing about um, making a movie versus a miniseries. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, this is a movie that I'm sure. um could have benefited from a different medium in certain ways. It was obviously much more unruly and bigger than I would have ever imagined when I stepped into it. But um, I, I purposefully chose the, the, the titans of Depp and Whitaker as vessels to carry the message. I felt there was no better way to marry commerce and art and the marriage of marketing and the significance in it and the distribution of a movie than to get these two heavyweights to carry the message. It was a very conscious choice. Yeah. Also, there's so much that I'm sure went on at Death Row Records that has never come out. You know, yeah. 
so much. And, you know, that's a whole thing on its own. I mean, if they ever had the unedited, I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, um, did you talk a little bit about, obviously you didn't make this for some crazy budget, but did you have a much longer cut? I mean, how, what was your director's cut versus the final release? It was probably about <clears throat> 45 minutes to an hour longer, probably. I mean, oh, wow. maybe 45 minutes, I would think 35, 45 minutes. I mean, there was a version early on that was an hour, but uh, I, I, I whittled it down and whittled it down. It's a movie that's a super slow burn. It's also odd for me how it really impacts people. Um, some people are like super invested in the relationship and the family and are really moved at the end of the movie. Other people don't care. Um, it's very polarizing in that regard. I found um, it's, it's, you can see it in the reviews. It's like, I mean, I do think, uh, you know, Johnny's been dealing with some publicly, some personal stuff that I think unfortunately has had an impact on perception of the film, unfortunately as well, which, you know, I don't think it should. We're dealing with the, the murder at the hands of the police of one of the most prominent black men ever. I don't think anybody's personal life is going to usurp that. So dealing with that, in my opinion, is inconsequential and ridiculous to deal with anything regarding Johnny's personal life, um, regarding the, the, the seriousness of the subject matter. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my feeling overall is, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize that in testing the movie and working with Open Road and the movie they were looking to release, that there was just a responsibility for such a slow burn movie to whittle it down to as short as possible, because even then it feels longer than it is um, in certain ways, which it moves at times and it doesn't. And, you know, we leaned into the information. It, 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 it was just a conscious choice of the film we were trying to make and what I was trying to do. What were like the last scene or scenes that you took out of the film? Like, what was the stuff that was like right at the end? You're like, fuck, I don't know if I can lose this scene. For me, it was a few things. Number one, I real we had real problems um, with uh, Jack Jackson's character and the way the audience perceived him. Um, you know, there's this, I don't know how much you want to get into this stuff, but with the NRG type testing um, and screen engine testing, there's these like mediums of like what is standard that a movie star should test and it was like super odd that Johnny was like testing it through the roof and Forrest was not and I I looked at it the what I had to choose to do which was really cutthroat and challenging was I looked at it like Jaws one of the feedback or a lot of the feedback we were getting from audiences they didn't like the woman he was dating. They didn't like his backstory. They didn't like all the negative things about him. They didn't understand how, why he had this nicer apartment and car. They had all these problems with him. So I took the Jaws theory, which was like, well, I think the best thing that ever happened to Spielberg on Jaws was the shark dying. Because then what's, what we don't see is much scarier than what we do see. So he really made that work in the end. And, and that was the approach I really had to take with Jack Jackson, which was like to cut out his backstory so that when you meet him, you just put your own feelings and thoughts of who he is on the character. And his testing went up like 20% and he started testing fairly high. And that was like, got, you know, open road really excited. And that was the movie we had to make, but that was hard for me. And it was hard for Forrest. And um, it does turn his character in a way a little bit more into a vessel of facts and information. And, and that stuff's challenging. I mean, there's some incredible work and scenes that he did in his backstory that I was always riveted by this complex character who had this 
really challenged backstory and was a much darker character. Um, we had scenes in the strip club with the relationship with this particular stripper who he was talking to the, about with the case and a big fight they have and some wonderful stuff. But, you know, you know how movies go. Yeah, I, I, I do. And uh, that's why they invented Blu-rays and DVDs for deleted scenes. I didn't put all the deleted scenes on there, but I, I did put the, the fight because I just thought Forrest was so brilliant and uh, Natalie Martinez was super brilliant. And, um, you know, I wanted to represent their work. I, I was careful about, you know, um, not careful, that's not the right word. I was just, you know, selective in making sure that I gave the audience or the fans or people who loved the movie or whatever their feelings were an opportunity to dig deeper. Yeah, I can I can actually understand. Um, obviously, I have not seen those those scenes, but I could I can actually understand how the audience is almost sort of I don't want to say Forrest character, but the audience is following Forrest into this world to yeah. research. And I can understand a little bit where if you're spending 20 minutes on him dealing with his backstory and like more on him, that it might take you you're almost like wanting to get back to okay, tell me more about. You know, um, yeah, it's it's not delineated in that way. It's very interwoven. So, like I said, his backstory with the particular woman at the club, they were talking about all the biggie stuff. There's a, one scene which is like uh, overflow of stuff, but it really was less about that. It was just about it, it really is as simple as this Jaws analogy from the perspective of if you show who he was and is, then you have an opinion on that. If you don't, you make your own opinion and allowing people to make their own opinion, it simplified the matter. Um, I had also had a scene where he went and found Dayton Callie who plays, you know, pool supervisor. Um, and you show how he figured out how he found Russ Poole at, at a church. So there was like background in him digging. And, you know, when I got into the story, like the movie really begins when him and him and Johnny go head to head and Johnny says, OK, let me tell you a story. And we go to, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, Biggie's, you know, murder. That's really where the movie begins. That's at about, you know, 10 to 12 minutes. So the reality of that is, is like I had to get there in the cut as fast as possible. And so showing how he found Russ Poole, I, I even have like a little investigative thing where he's in Russ's building talking to the janitor. And it just it just wasn't helping the drive of the narrative and the story. We needed to get to the heart of it and get moving. Very similar to like the movie needs to get to David Mack as soon as possible, because once you get to Mack, it's moving. You know, it, it's just, there were real challenges in these things that we had to, to balance. I don't remember if the version I saw a, a few years ago, if the beginning was exactly what I saw yesterday. Did you change anything? I, or I took actually your, your, your thoughts were very impactful to me. And um, I, I made some adjustments to the beginning. There were more things, truthfully, that I wanted to do to the film that um, due to time and money and certain things, when Saban and Lionsgate acquired the movie, I was unfortunately not given the opportunity to do that I thought would have really completed the circle for me. But actually, I, it, I have the utmost respect for you, Stephen. Um, to be frank, uh, I, I, it always lived with me what you had said. So I made some changes in the beginning there to address some of the thoughts we had discussed, actually. Yeah, because uh, the beginning felt different to me yesterday. I'll be honest. I, I mean, I saw it, as you know, I mean, I might have seen it three years ago now, you know? Yeah, I think you saw three and a half. I yeah, it's hard. To... You know, I, I, it's, as you may know, I, I watch a lot of movies. I and... know, I know. Did the beginning play better for you this time? Yes, it did. And I think that, <laughs> it, well, no, it did because I think that if I remember correctly, the version I originally saw 
it, I was trying to connect. How does this all connect? Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And how is it all going to go together? And I could be wrong about this, but like, was the VO of Johnny at the beginning of the movie saying, was that like a little bit different where he's saying like, there's, I didn't realize for eight days or this was. Yeah, there's some adjustments there. There's some adjustments in the editing. There's some adjustments in the opening documentary. There, there's some adjustments with that stuff collectively. Um, but again, I, I got to be truthful. There were some big moves I wanted to do to this thing that I didn't get a crack at. But this is the the political baseball filmmaking. And that's OK. You know, well, it's also listen, you being blunt. I mean, you were also dealt a uh, a very difficult pitch when you have so many different people that are owners or were owners of this film and it constantly moving. And ultimately, you know what I mean? Now it's, it, you know, you're with a company that obviously wants to, it, the good news is it's going into the marketplace. Yeah, that, that, I, I'm, I'm happy to put this one behind me. I gotta be honest, I'm gonna sleep better at night with this movie out in the world than behind me. I, I, it's, it's the right thing for me, but it's the right thing for the world. Um, we fought for the truth and the integrity of the messaging. And uh, I'm proud of that. I, I, it's, it's, not, it's not by my standard, it's a perfect film. I, and I don't, it really should have no bearing on whether you see it or don't see it, to be frank, because um, people have enjoyed other films I've made and I don't think they're perfect films. So at the end of the day, you know, we live and we learn. I, I'm actually super excited from a personal perspective because I think my best work is actually ahead of me. And, and I'm, I'm, I, I sort of, I got paid to learn. So uh, I, I'm in my prime and I'm ready to have my Michael Jordan years. Uh, I Listen, I think that the film does a very good job at pulling the curtain back on what probably happened with, you know, Christopher Wallace. Mm-hmm. And, and if, listen, obviously we're never going to exactly know what happened, but this, you know, no one is, um, uh, I mean, it, it shines a light on what might've actually happened. You know, and it, and it yeah. creates a very descriptive portrait, you know, and doesn't, you know what I mean? It, it gets in there. Uh, I mean, that was our goal to just get in there as deep as we could and, and, and get these, get the information out and let people make their own choices and opinions and belief. And if people want to fight for justice um, and, and again, it's bigger than Christopher. We look at what's going on in the world today with the trial and all these different things that are happening and, uh, you know, we, we can't stand for less. We have to stand for something. And um, this represents that. Uh, my last thing for you, uh, obviously I'm a fan of your work, as you know. Uh, what have you been writing, working on, developing? What I've got some really super cool stuff, stuff to me that I, one thing in particular I've worked on for a decade, which has come to completion, which is my baby. Another thing that I wrote over the last two years and, um, I haven't shared this with anyone, but I will tell you, um, and, and only you, I've been, I've been writing uh, to write and direct the Pistol Pete Maravich story. Really? Yeah, I have not told that to a soul, but I have so much love and affection for you. I, you are the first person to know this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, is it, do you have, what do you, do you have the rights? Like how, what, what's? It's, uh, it's the, it's Steve Nash is a producer. Um, and Peter Lawson, and uh, Steve's obviously working in conjunction with the NBA, obviously he's the coach of Brooklyn right now, and um, a a wonderful group of people, and uh, I feel really honored. I wrote my sixth grade heroes paper on Pistol Pete, and uh, I think this is not, for many who just hear it, think it's a basketball story, but um, it's it's a story of uh, 
generational trauma and psychology and some really fascinating things. So, uh, you know, I, I, I usually take that answer and I just politely say I'm working on things and don't share. But uh, I, I, I really appreciate the support you've given me through my career. And I meant what I said. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to be still standing and I'm, I'm really honored to chat with you. When, when uh, my publicist and I talked about it, I said, oh, my God, I'd, I'd love to talk to Steve. I, I just think he's a gem. And it, it's the, your, your cinephile nature, your love of movies, your integrity. Uh, how you approach your craft is is so important to filmmakers like myself. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like anything in life. If you do it more and more, you learn and you get better. They don't teach you when you're learning film about all the politics or in, in making movies and the challenges that go into final products when they go out into the theater. Um, and, you know, my, my name is synonymous with certain work, but I'm really excited for what the future has ahead. And this is one of those things. And um, that's why I shared. I appreciate that. Yeah, the thing that's so funny that I I think that it would be so important for everyone that writes about movies or TV to, and it's never going to happen because of the logistics, but it would be great if everyone could just spend one day on a movie set or one day on a TV set to see actually how these things are made. Sure. And, and, the, and the problems that come up, and like, you know, you as a filmmaker, you might have planned for six months for this one day of filming, and all of a sudden, the location <laughs> is cut down to two hours. I got stories, man. I, I my stories have stories. I'm telling on this one and all of them. I, I I got a great book or documentary or something in my future. Yeah, I mean, but but that's the thing that I, I don't think enough people realize that like there's so many people who just think like, oh well, you know, they had this much time and blah blah blah, but like. They're not even thinking about, you know, well, the actor was really sick and like he was throwing up all day and just getting him to do that one hour on yeah, set right. was like a miracle. Yeah. You know? Well, like I, I appreciate your love and understanding of filmmaker, uh, filmmaking and, and you're in a very rare class. Uh, I, I say thank you. I Listen, I'll leave you alone about Pistol Pete, but fuck, I had more questions. I don't want to drill. I'll just oh, say no, yeah, Let's just we'll leave it at that for now. That'd be cool. Yeah, no, I, but that's something that could be very cool. Let me actually, let me ask you though, is it a movie or is it a series? It's a movie. Okay, I'll leave it there. I, All right, perfect. There's, there's that. Uh, no, man, look, I'm very happy this movie's finally coming out for you. Thank I wish you. you nothing but the best. And I hope you're making another movie again very soon. Me too. So, <laughs> from your mouth. <laughs>